If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 502. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. This is B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahan Academy, which you've already heard about, but it's free to enroll. You get 10 Myths of American History free of charge when you do enroll. And of course, you can purchase one of my courses there, which or 12 of my courses there. It keeps this podcast free of charge. You can also click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can buy a book plate for one of my books. You can get my autograph on those. Of course, I've got many books out. Uh, the latest is The Jeffersonian Tradition, which Tom DiLorenzo graciously reviewed at LeeRockwell.com just about two weeks ago. It's a great book. You've also got Southern Scribblings and then, of course, a host of other books. You can also click on that shop tab at BrianMcClanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. As always, share the podcast around on social media, rate it wherever you get your podcasts, let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally, and you are listening to the show. That's how we grow the audience. All right. Was sent this by a listener, and again, this is a nice reminder, if you want me to talk about something, you can send me your show requests. As always, I may not respond back to your email, but I do read them. So I got this from a listener, and he wanted me to talk about the Claremont Institute's new Sheriff's Fellowship. And this got me thinking about the Claremont Institute. Now, if you don't know, Michael Anton and I had a back and forth, which... I've pretty much discontinued. I, I, I'm probably going to respond in some way to his latest attack or the most recent attack he had on me. Um, but I haven't decided how I'm going to do that yet. But we had a back and forth. It started with a piece I wrote for Chronicles Magazine, blasting the 1776 Commission. He responded. I responded back to that. And then he responded again. He also responded to Paul Gottfried. Uh, but... The Claremont Institute is problematic for a number of reasons. And I think the most important reason is that because it teaches a distorted view of American history, and that is the proposition nation myth. And this comes from Harry Jaffa. Now look, Harry Jaffa, as Anton, he calls him my teacher. And if you read any of these Claremont people, it's really kind of strange how they do this. They, they say, my teacher, my teacher, Harry Jaffa, my teacher, Harry Jaffa. In any of these people, you go out and you look at what they're writing, and it's almost like Harry Jaffa wrote the stuff. Because that's what they do. They just go back to whatever Harry Jaffa said was this, and that's it. right? I mean, you see this with uh, several of these people. It, it's not just Michael Anton. It's, it's people like Claremont. It's people that have, that have uh, been Claremont fellows. Now, not all of them. But a lot of them. It's people that have uh, studied with these people. They, they believe the sun rises and sets in the view of Harry Jaffa. Harry Jaffa wrote an essay uh, about 40 years ago, a little almost 50 years ago now. I guess it would be 50 years ago. 
equality as conservative, or I'm, I'm paraphrasing the title, but that's essentially what he's saying. The, the term equality was a conservative term. And the reason he was doing this, I think, and of course I pointed this out in the Chronicle pieces, was to fend off the left, right? Because this is at a time, it was written within 10 years of uh, George Wallace and what was happening with desegregation and integration and these type of things. So the left was successfully portraying conservatives as racist. So if they're all just racist and everything they're doing, every, every part of their worldview is based simply on race, then they were going to lose that. So what Joppa was trying to do, and I understand the point, okay, well, let's disarm the left by saying, no, 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 equality is actually a conservative principle because Abraham Lincoln was a conservative. Now, no one thought Abraham Lincoln was a conservative in the 1860s. No one did. I mean, there was, there was no way to, uh, to portray Lincoln as a conservative. Compared to the radical Republicans, he was conservative. But compared to conservatives, Lincoln was not a conservative. He wasn't James Byard of Delaware, for example. He wasn't John Bell of Tennessee. He wasn't a conservative. He was a reformer, a radical reformer in a lot of ways. And he was a nationalist, which was not conservative. That is not the American conservative tradition. And I'm going to explain that today in this particular show using a primary document that I cover in one of my McClanahan Academy courses, but I'll talk about that in a minute. So you have this idea of Lincoln as a conservative, equality as conservative, and so what the Claremont people have done and what all the Jaffaites have done, the Straussians, it doesn't matter whether they're, they want to be called neocons or not, Anton bristles at the, at the, when I say that all the Claremont people are essentially neoconservatives, because they are. They're neoconservatives because if you look back at Lincoln, Lincoln was not conservative. So they don't like the term neoconservative because it's loaded, and of course that has a specific connotation in the 20th century. These are people like the Crystals, who were liberals, but a lot of conservatives were Marxist at one time or another and then grew up. But the fact is, you've got these neoconservatives who are in, invested in an aggressive American foreign policy. We've talked about that with Afghanistan the last couple of weeks. They don't like to be called neoconservatives, but Lincoln wasn't a conservative. If you're saying Lincoln was conservative, then you're a neoconservative. You are. A Straussian is a neoconservative in many ways. Okay, So they're all neoconservatives. The fact is, they don't like that. So when you lump them all together, they get upset with this. But all of these people have at their core a belief of America that's based on a proposition nation, nation ideal, right? And if you go and look at what Claremont has on their website, it's recovering the American ideal. What the heck is that? America's not an idea. It can't be. It can't be an idea. There's no idea of America, as I'm going to point out here. Not even the founders believed there was an idea of America. There were concrete, flesh-and-bone things of America. Blood, there was America in that. It wasn't an idea. It wasn't some mythical thing they just created in their mind and said, this is America. No, no, no. These are things, and I'm going to, that word blood is actually used by a member of the founding generation to describe what America was. It wasn't some fabricated thing that just came up with an idea, American idea. Well, what is that idea? Well, to the Claremont people, it's going to be 
Lincoln and John Marshall. And I, and I say that because they have this new Sheriff's Fellowship. One of these things is not like the other. Lincoln Fellowship, John Marshall Fellowship, Sheriff's Fellowship. The Sheriff's, let me, let me read what this Sheriff's Fellowship is. Founded in 2021, the Claremont Institute Sheriff's Fellowship offers training of unparalleled depth and excellence in American political thought and institutions. I highly doubt that. I highly doubt that because what you're going to get is a bunch of Lincolnian nationalist stupidity. That's what you're going to get. It's not unparalleled depth and excellence. I don't think so. Are they going to read John Taylor of Caroline? Are they really going to read what Jefferson said about things, or are they just going to read the Declaration? Well, I'll tell you that. They're just going to read the Declaration because that's one of the topics. The Declaration of Independence, is the principle of the Declaration going to be what it really was, which was a document of independence, or is it going to be, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights? Is it going to be a bunch of natural law, or is it going to be what the Declaration was intended to be, an indictment of the king, with the last paragraph, and, and also the first, being important. When the course of human events becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. Dissolve the political bands. That's the whole point of the Declaration. They say it at the beginning, and then they say it at the end when they say that these states are free and independent states. That's the whole point. from the country's top constitutional experts and political theorists. Fourteen sheriff applicants will be selected for their character, aptitude, accomplishment, zeal, and community reputation to gather for five days to study and discuss the political, political philosophical, institu institutional, and historical arc leading from the American founding to today's militant progressivism and multiculturalism, but with particular emphasis on the role of law enforcement in maintaining liberty. Discussions will be based on readings from primary sources, including John Locke, the Federalist Papers, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England, key court decisions, and the writings and speeches of great statesmen. Now, I don't know what the curriculum is going to be, but the whole point of the Sheriff's Fellowship is to focus on localism, I would think. A sheriff is a, is a distinctive term. These were people that enforced, if you go back to the colonial period, these are the people, the local law enforcement would decide if the laws of the realm were enforceable. And if you go back to Virginia, the sheriffs had a pretty important role there because they would often not enforce laws they considered to be unconstitutional. This was before... The, uh, the Constitution was written, or the Articles of Confederation was written. This is before that. This is during the colonial period. These are things they would do. The entire American tradition, if you, if you look at the political tradition, now the Claremont people won't say this, but the entire American political tradition is resistance to centralization. That's it. And I'm going to use a historical example that I'm sure they're not going to use. But it's a pretty important guy in American history. Okay, So this Sheriff's Fellowship got me thinking about, you know, the point was, hey, can you talk about the Claremont trying to come up with this, trying to take this idea of localism that we work so hard for on our side, and now they're going to co-opt it and make it some Lincolnian stupidity. But 
I mean, hey, if they're really going to do it right, I'm fine with whoever does it. But I don't think they're going to do it right. Not when you've got the Lincoln Fellowship and the John Marshall Fellowship, two people that would be completely hostile to localism. The only thing John Marshall ever did right in any of his rulings was uh, essentially Baron v. Baltimore when he said the Bill of Rights didn't apply to the states. That's it. It's the only thing he ever really ever did right on the bench. Everything else was a cascading series of uh, fatal blows to the original Constitution. That's what John Marshall was doing. So let me talk about what the, if you look at what the founding period was really about, and, and, I, and I always point to this, to the Stamp Act, and I'm glad the Tenth Amendment people have, have gotten on board with this. The Stamp Act and the response to that was nullification. It was nullification. In fact, Morgan's uh, history of the Stamp Act has a title, a chapter titled Nullification, right? So this is what was happening. They were nullifying the Stamp Act. Why? Because that is the American political tradition. The American political tradition is telling the center, no, we're not doing it. No, what you are doing is illegal and unconstitutional. That is the entire point of the Declaration. It's the entire point of the opponents of the Constitution and saying, hey, look, we don't like this document because we think we're going to get too much centralized power. So what do they do? The proponent said, okay, we understand. These are the promises we're making to you. No, 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 we're not going to run over the states. We're not going to go in and deal with the internal affairs of the states. There's no negative over state law. That doesn't exist. None of that exists. And to ensure that we're going to uphold our promise, we're going to give you the Tenth Amendment, right? Which was first among many of the proposed lists of amendments. This is what we're going to do. So let me go back to a document that was written before the Declaration. Before the Declaration. This is why this is important. It's not written after. It's written before the Declaration. In fact, this document is written in 1774. 1774, before the Declaration is written, same guy writing the same, writing the document, is Thomas Jefferson. 1774, a summary view of the rights of British America. Of the rights of British America. Now, if Jefferson was so interested in this natural rights proposition nation stuff, you would think he would have been consistent in that across the board in this document as well. He would have talked about it. When he talks about rights here, though, these aren't, we, this, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It's not what he's talking about here. The rights he's talking about here are much different. Much different. In fact, these are the same rights he was really talking about in the Declaration. It's just a little different kind of language. But it's the same thing. It's why when Jefferson later said, I was just expressing the American mind in the Declaration, this is the American mind in the 1770s. So it's often said, of course, well, these people, they had all these lofty ideals. No, no, it was pretty practical. They were fighting for the ancient constitutions that they were given, for the rights that they had thought had been won by blood, and Jefferson uses that, that term, that had been won by blood. Now, I talk about this document in my Southern Cultural and Intellectual History. This is in Part 1 at McClanahan Academy. So I'm going to go over a couple things. that I don't want to steal all my thunder there. 
you can go and get that class, and you can have a lecture on this there too. There's a lot of other great stuff in that class, just like my originalist papers. We're going to talk about the Constitution this week as well. We're going to look at a Supreme Court <laughs> in, uh, injunction and the response to that, which is interesting. We're going to talk about a lot of good things this week, but I wanted to start with this because, again, we have to discuss principles. So Jefferson said this in 1774. He's talking about the problem that they're facing in 1774. The problems of the relationship between the crown and also the parliament and the colonies themselves. He said this, To remind him, meaning George III, that our ancestors, before their emigration to America, were the free inhabitants of the British domains in, dominions I'm sorry, in Europe and possessed a right which nature had given to all men of departing from the country in which chance, not choice, had placed them, of going in quest of new habitations, and of their establishing new societies under such laws and regulations as to them shall see most likely to promote public happiness. Now, he said almost the exact same thing in the Declaration. It is their right, it is their duty to set up governments that will promote their happiness, right? So this is... They were born, but they traveled over to... They were born in England, but traveled, or Great Britain, uh, traveled to the Americas, and they established new societies under and organized those societies in the way that they saw fit. This is the right of self-determination. This is exactly what the entire declaration is about. That their Saxon ancestors had under this universal law in like manner, left their native wilds and woods in the north of Europe, had possessed themselves of the island of Britain, then less charged with inhabitants, and had established there the system of laws which has so long been the glory and protection of that country. Nor was ever any claim of superiority or dependence asserted over them by that mother country from which they had migrated. And were such a claim made, it is believed that His Majesty's subjects in Great Britain have too firm a feeling of the rights derived to them from their ancestors to bow down the sovereignty of their state before such visionary pretensions. Jefferson's already using the term sovereignty of their state. They're talking about the place in which they lived then in Virginia, right? Or Massachusetts, or New York, or Georgia, or South Carolina. These are the states. This is what he's talking about here. Pennsylvania, Maryland, North Carolina. This is what he's talking about. Let me. Nor was ever any claim of superiority or dependence asserted over them by that mother country from which they had migrated. So, look, the Saxons were never told you have to be a Saxon here. No, they went and had their own society. And were such a claim made. It is believed that His Majesty's subjects in Great Britain have too firm a feeling of the rights derived to them from their ancestors. Their rights derived to them from their ancestors. These are the ancient constitutions. Or you could say that he's also talking about, of course, the people that settled here. The rights derived from their ancestors, tradition, and you can claim, well, this is right, tradition. This is what we're talking about here, natural law, tradition. No, that's not what Jefferson is talking about, and he makes it clear later on in the, in the essay. But the bow down the sovereignty of their state, 
the sovereignty of their state. This idea that states are sovereign, this wasn't fabricated. Jefferson's saying it in 1774. And it is thought that no circumstance has occurred to distinguish materially the British from the Saxon immigration. America was conquered and her settlements made and firmly established at the expense of individuals and not of the British public. Their own blood was spilt in acquiring lands for their settlement. Their own fortunes expended in making that settlement effectual. For themselves they fought, for themselves they conquered, and for themselves alone they have a right to hold. These were independent people. They weren't doing it for the crown. They were doing it for themselves. And so the crown had no claim on this land. You could say the same thing about the Western territories. People have often said, well, you know, the states, the original 13 states, and maybe Texas could say that they're independent, but nothing else, because this was all territory of the United States. Who settled it? Who settled it? The military doesn't settle it. They can put forts out there, but that's not what settles it. What settles it are the people who till the land, who build things. These are the people that settle it. It is theirs. Not a shilling was ever issued from the public treasuries of his majesty or his ancestors for their assistance till a very late times, after the colonies had become established on a firm and permanent footing. That then, indeed, having become valuable to Great Britain for commercial purposes, his parliament was pleased to lend them assistance against an enemy who would, have, who would fain have drawn to herself the benefits of their commerce to the great aggrandizement of herself and danger of Great Britain. Such assistance, and in such circumstances, they have given, often given before to Portugal and other allied states with whom they carry on a commercial intercourse. Notice that he said Portugal is a state, Great Britain's a state, Virginia is a state, Massachusetts is a state, Pennsylvania is a state. That term has meaning. That's why we have the United States. These are all states independent sovereignties with whom to carry on a commercial intercourse. Yet these states never supposed that by calling in her aid, they thereby submitted themselves to her sovereignty. Had such terms been proposed, they would have rejected them with disdain and trusted for better to the moderation of their enemies or to a vigorous exertion of their own force. We do not, however, mean to underrate those aids, which to us were doubtless valuable on whatever principles granted. But we would show that they cannot give a title to that authority which the British Parliament would arrogate over us, and that they may amply be repaid by our giving to the inhabitants of Great Britain such exclusive privileges in trade as may be advantageous to them, and at the same time too restrictive to ourselves. That settlements having been thus affected in the wilds of America, the emigrants thought proper to adopt that system of laws under which they had hitherto lived in the mother country, and to continue their own union with her by submitting themselves to the same common sovereign, who was thereby made the central link connecting the several parts of the empire thus newly multiplied. But that not long were they permitted, however, for they thought themselves removed from the hand of oppression to hold undisturbed the rights thus acquired at the hazard of their lives and loss of their fortunes. A family of princes was then on the British throne whose Treasonable crimes against their people brought on them afterwards the exertion of those sacred and sovereign rights of punishment reserved in the hands of the people for cases of extreme necessity, and judged by the Constitution unsafe to be delegated to any other 
judic- uh, any other judge, right? While every day brought forth some and new and unjustifiable exertion of power over their subjects on that side of the water, it was not to be expected that these that those here, much less able at the time to oppose the designs of despotism, should be exempted from injury. So he's talking about there, of course, uh, the English Civil War and the fact that uh, King Charles would be executed. Now, let me back up for a second. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but I'm going to highlight a couple of other things in this document. Jefferson is pointing out that they adopted the English laws because that would affect their stability. But yet they were setting up their own rules and requirements because this is what they have the right to do. He says it in the second paragraph of this document. He says, Accordingly, that country which has had been acquired by the lives, the labors, and the fortunes of individual adventurers was by these princes at several times parted out and distributed among the favorites and followers of their fortunes, and by an assumed right of the crown alone were erected into distinct and independent governments, a measure which is believed, it is believed his majesty's prudence and understanding would prevent him from imitating at this day as no exercise of such a power of dividing and dismembering a country has ever occurred in his majesty's realm of England, though now a very ancient standing, nor could it be justified or acquiesced over there or any in any other part of his majesty's empire. So he brings up that there is free trade. One of the things they were upset about, of course, was free trade. He calls that a natural right. This is what Jefferson says is a natural right, a natural right of free trade. That's the very first charge against the king of, of England, king of Great Britain. Free trade. Free trade. That alone, he thought, Jefferson thought, was enough to criticize the king of Great Britain. He says that thus we have we hastened through the reigns which preceded his majesties during which the violations of our right were less alarming because repeated at more distant intervals than that than that rapid and bold succession of injuries, which is likely to distinguish the present from all other periods of American story. Scarcely have our minds been able to emerge from the astonishment into which one stroke of parliamentary thunder has involved us before another more heavy and more alarming has fallen on us. Single acts of tyranny may be ascribed to the accidental opinion of the day, but a series of oppressions begun a distinguished period and pursued unalterably through every change of ministers to plainly prove a deliberate and systemical plan of reducing us to slavery. So if it was just free trade, they were worried about, okay, but it was the acts of legislation which violated the understandings, the constitutions of these American states. And he lists them, an act, for granting certain duties in the British colonies and plantations, an act for granting and applying certain stamp duties, an act for better securing the dependencies of His Majesty's dominions in America under the Crown and Parliament. He lists them. He says, But that one other act passed in the same seventh year of the reign, having been a, per- a peculiar attempt 
must ever require peculiar mention. It is entitled an act for suspending the legislature of New York. One free and independent legislature takes upon herself to suspend the powers of another free and independent as itself, thus exhibiting a phenomenon unknown in nature, the creator and creature of its own power. Not only the principles of common sense, but the common feelings of human nature must be surrendered up before His Majesty's subjects here can be persuaded to believe that they hold their political existence at the will of a British Parliament. Shall these governments be dissolved, their property annihilated, and their people returned to a state of nature at the imperious breath of a body of men whom they never saw and whom they never confided and over whom they have no powers of punishment or removal? Let their crimes against the American public be ever so great. Can anyone reason be assigned why 160,000 electors in the island of Great Britain should give law to four millions in the states of America, every individual of whom is equal to every individual of them in virtue and understanding and in bodily strength? Were this to be admitted, I'm sorry, were this to be admitted instead of being a free people, as we have hitherto supposed and mean to continue ourselves, we should suddenly be found the slaves, not of one, but of 160,000 tyrants, distinguished two from all others by the, by the singular circumstance that they are removed from, from the reach of fear, the only restraining motive which, they, which may hold the hand of a tyrant. This is the no representation issue that he's bringing up here. But it's important. One sovereign people, one sovereign legislature takes it upon itself to abolish another sovereign legislature. You can't do it. You can't abolish sovereign legislature. This is where he said legislative power is incapable of annihilation. This is what he's talking about there. Same thing. Jefferson continues that these are the acts of power assumed by a body of men foreign to our constitutions and unacknowledged by our laws against which we do on behalf of the inhabitants of British America enter into the solemn and determined protest and we do earnestly entreat his majesty as yet the our only mediatory power between the several states of the British Empire to recommend to this Parliament of Great Britain the total revocation of these acts, which, however nugatory they may be, yet may, may yet prove the cause of further discontents and jealousies among us. So he's, he's saying, look, these acts are unacknowledged by our laws. They are unacknowledged by our laws. That we next proceed to consider the conduct of His Majesty as holding the executive powers of these laws of these states and mark out his deviations from the line of duty. By the Constitution of Great Britain, as well as the several American states, His Majesty possesses the power of refusing to pass into any law into law any bill which has already passed the other two branches of the legislature. His Majesty ever had, and his ancestors, conscious of the impropriety of opposing their single opinion, of, of imposing their single opinion into the united wisdom of two houses of parliament, while their proceedings were unbiased by interested principles, for several ages past have modestly declined the exercise of this power and that part of his empire called Great Britain. But Jefferson is saying we need to change this. So if you read through this document, and again, I don't want to steal all of my thunder, but this is all about the right of local self-government. It's all about the right of local self-government. 
And it also, Jefferson also gets into what's called the dominion theory. But with all that, I mean, I get into that in the, in the class at McClanahan Academy. But the entire point of this document blows apart this proposition nation myth, this natural rights myth, because Jefferson is focusing on practical things, the grievances, the grievances that they have with the empire that go back to infringement on the sovereign states of America. He says that these are our grievances which we have thus laid before his majesty with that freedom of language and sentiment which becomes a free people claiming their rights as derived from the laws of nature and not as the gift of their chief magistrate. And these these laws of nature that he's talking about here of course, are things like trade and right of self-government. That's what he's talking about. Trade and self-government. The right to represent yourself. That's what he's talking about. Not some other kind of right, but that. That's what he means by the laws of nature. Let those flatter who fear. It is not an American art to give praise, which is not due, might be well for from the venal, but would be what would ill beseem those who are asserting the rights of human nature. They know and will therefore say that kings are the servants, not the proprietors of the people. Open your breast, sire, to liberal and expanded thought. Let not the name of George III be a blot on the, in the page of history. You are surrounded by British counselors, but remember that they are parties. You have no ministers for American affairs because you have. You have none taken from among us, nor amenable to the laws on which they are to give you advice. It behooves you, therefore, to think and to act for yourself and your people. So he's saying, look, you have no, you have no uh, uh, advice coming from the American colonies, and you need that. Now, at one point in this, uh, in this particular. Piece, he gets into where you have the states have their own constitutions and you can't you can't infringe upon those. That's local self-government. It's local self-government. So that is, more than anything else, the great principle of the American founding. Local self-government, the right of self-determination, the natural right of life, liberty, and property which, of course, Jefferson is talking about quite a bit here, and which is what also you know, George Mason talked about. It's what John Locke talked about. I mean, if you want to say that, if you want to say John Locke's important. But that local self-government, you can't have that, though. I, I bring this back to Claremont. If you're going to have a Lincoln Fellowship and a John Marshall Fellowship, now Marshall, of course, was interested in property. But if you're going to have a Lincoln Fellowship, Lincoln didn't believe in local self-government. If he did, there would have been no war. It wouldn't have happened. Because Lincoln didn't really believe in local self-government. He believed in the rights of the empire. That was, those were his states. The people that lived there had no right to take those states out of the Union, to say we are no longer part of your government. That is Lincoln acting as George III. And, what you, what, and look, the North knows this, which is why they had to make the war about something else. Because if it's just about a war of conquest, that's immoral. You can't do that. You can't have a war of conquest. That's an immoral and illegal war. But Lincoln had to do something. 
All right. So I wanted to start the week with this. We're going to get into some other legal things this week, too, and some other stuff. But I wanted to start the week with this. It was a listener-generated episode, and I wanted to bring Jefferson's summary view into the discussion and how that's the real founding, the right of self-government, local self-government. That's what natural rights really are to the Jeffersonians. And Jefferson made that clear throughout his entire life in his dedication to federalism. This is what he really believed, not this other thing that the left originally ran with, and now somehow this is considered to be conservative, which you're not really conserving anything. You're just conserving British 19th century liberalism is what you're doing. All right. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. (laughs) 